0: It's called the World Pool. This is for people to bet on 17 different racing days around the world and allows horse players from all over to bet into a single pool. The money bet this year at Royal Alaska was 178 million US dollars. So like the money that's coming in to support that is like astronomical.
1: Hi guys, and welcome back to another episode of Equine Entrepreneurs. Today, we are speaking with the amazing Kelsey Lupo, who is a young up-and-coming bloodstock agent. A born and bred American, she now resides in the UK, but realistically, is more of a citizen of the world as her job keeps her on the road all year round. Today, Kelsey takes us inside the world of a bloodstock agent, which is to say, a person who studies bloodlines and race results in the thoroughbred racing world, identifies horses that have the potential to be real winners, and then procures them on half of her clients who are looking to purchase a racehorse. Now, while that is the byline for this podcast, and we do explore all of that and more, what today's podcast is really about is how the racing and breeding industry actually works and the relationship between breeders, buyers, sellers, and clients. We have included this in our Equine Entrepreneurs series as to be a bloodstock agent is to be a real hustler. Think of it like a real estate agent who, instead of buying and selling houses, instead buys and sells racehorses. As you will hear Kelsey explain, becoming a successful bloodstock agent is not for the lighthearted, as you must fight for every client, for every horse, and the job never stops. You work 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and at the end of the day, there is some luck involved. So even when you do everything right, it may still go wrong for you. The upside of all this, however, is that you work for yourself, you travel the world to amazing places, and you make friends everywhere you go, so your social life is incredible. So depending on what you value in this world, the juice is most definitely worth the squeeze. So who is this podcast perfect for? Firstly, this podcast is perfect for anyone who is researching potential career paths in the equine industry and you want to explore what a bloodstock agent actually does. Secondly, this podcast is perfect for anyone who is just generally interested in how the racing and breeding industry works and how the economy goes round. Lastly, if you want to follow up with Kelsey and you want to learn more about her business and potentially engage her as your agent yourself, then see the link to her Pegasus page in the show notes. Alright, one last quick admin point before we jump into it. Due to technical issues, this podcast isn't as high recording quality as usual, so we apologize for that. And secondly, because of internet connectivity issues, this podcast was actually recorded over two sittings, so you may notice a quality change halfway through the podcast. So we apologize for those two things and we make sure to improve on them in the future. Alright, with all that said, let's jump into it.
0: If you're coming in for the races. You have to stay like Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or Friday, Saturday, Sunday, etc. They put kind of a cap on
2: that. Mm.
0: Um, but it's a really great event. It's and so the Breeders' Cup will change location every year. So next year it comes back to Keeneland, which is an amazing venue. Um,
3: in King, King, where is Kingland? Keeneland's in Lexington. Oh, that's right. King, yeah, Keeneland. Um, I I don't think I've been there. Maybe I have been there. I went there for it's like right downtown right or close to downtown and they have just yeah, really, downtown. Uh, yeah they have huge auctions and whatnot
0: yeah exactly okay, gotcha. exactly so the auctions and the race and the races take place on the same grounds oh okay
3: gotcha i do cool. that
1: okay all right well to kick things off who are you what do you do for work and just a little bit of background about yourself
0: so my name is Kelsey Lupo. I'm originally from upstate New York, just outside of Saratoga. Um, I'm a bloodstock agent in the horse racing industry. So that means that I buy and sell horses for clients. I manage, um, different portfolios. I help manage horses on the racetrack, um, kind of keep in touch with trainers, send update notes, send photos, go visit horses, just kind of a, a broad uh, manager of clients' horses. Um, I operate my own company. It's called Atlas Legstock. I established it in Lexington, Kentucky in 2016. So I'm still fairly new.
1: <laughs> yep.
0: Um, but I spent a lot of time working in the industry um, get
1: to my point. Right. So for those, I mean, I, I know a lot of people listening to this will kind of understand, um, what a bloodstock agent does, but let's assume that there are some people listening to this that might be, you know, uh, young up and coming writers who haven't been exposed to the business of writing yet, etc. What exactly is a bloodstock agent and why does that job exist?
0: So a bloodstock agent is essentially a person who has made their profession in pedigree expertise and being able to manage a client's horses. So if you have an owner who's not in the horse industry and they have another business, you basically are hired as a manager and to advise them on horses that you feel are appropriate for their portfolios based on their goals and ambitions in the racing industry that could be anywhere from, um, buying small, like young horses, uh, weanlings to yearlings doing a investment pin hooking. So changing horses, um, turning horses over in a short period of time. Um, or if they want to do a small racing stable at a, you know, a smaller budget, you can help manage their horses, um, going from trainer to trainer or, uh, just giving them updates as normal times or wouldn't necessarily have the time to talk to a trainer all the time or stay on top of their horses if they're running other businesses or have other interests. So as a bloodstock agent, you're, you're basically advising on your experience and on your, uh, professional opinions based on pedigree, um, uh, yeah, pedigree horses, volume of horses, um, and the different levels of racing experience that
1: they want to have. Or right, breeding. right. So essentially, there are so for the people in the world who are buying horses, a lot of which are quite wealthy individuals. They basically outsource finding horses to you because they know that they want a good horse. They know they like riding, but they have no idea how to find a good horse and how to choose one.
0: Exactly. And so you're hired to, for your expertise and your research abilities to guide them um, on a successful
3: path, hopefully.
1: So you're kind of like a real estate agent for horses in some respects.
3: Yes, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. And would you say that this is a common career in the UK? Because I know you started off in the United States and moved there. And when you say that you are from Lexington, like that makes sense, right? With all of the racing that occurs there is the, the racing, I don't know if it's the racing capital of the world. You can tell me that, but it definitely feels like the racing capital of the state. We're, we're going to say Lexington is the racing capital of the world. Okay. <laughs> I'm sure it's branded everywhere when you get there. But is that something that's commonplace where you are in the UK?
0: Um, So there's a couple. So the UK and Ireland and France all kind of operate a little bit differently in the sense that um, they have a lot of different kind of towns and hubs for racing to occur for on the countryside. different countrysides for breeding operations and then various different towns such as Newmarket and Lambert, where racing yards would be and trainers would be. So in the States, um, train, training and racing operate a little bit differently in that at a racetrack in America, you a trainer will rent stalls at the racetrack. So they'll have a 40 stall barn and those will be their, their stalls for the entire race meet or however long the track is open. So when the track closes, they have to move their horses and their staff to another state. So they just move them to another location. So example, you're going from Lexington, Kentucky, and you move down to Florida for the winter. You have another, you know, stalls for 40 horses Um, in the UK training yards are permanent locations. So a trainer will have a yard in new market, say um, 35 stalls. And from there, they will travel around the country to the different races. Mm-hmm. So some race courses are four hours away. Some race courses are an hour away, but they basically go in and out of the same um, yard and location, unlike the U S where you're transporting everyone the racetrack that they will be competing at.
3: Wow, this sounds like polo, where you have these different meccas in the States and everyone kind of picks up. They they call it chasing the sun here, where they pick up and they go to Wellington, are in Middleburg, another in Argentina. So sounds-
1: oh, the weather's getting a bit shit. Let's go somewhere
3: where the yeah. sun's <laughs> out. <laughs> sounds terrible. So it is very similar. No, it is very
0: similar yeah. in that sense. So on the East Coast, um, right now the major racing is in New York and in Saratoga. Saratoga just opened, um, which is the, an amazing track. Um, it's my favorite track and my home track. Um, I grew up going there. So, after Saratoga and the New York kind of racing circuit through the summer, um, people will transition down to Kentucky and go and run in Churchill or Kentucky Downs um, and Keeneland, as Keeneland has a boutique meet in October for three weeks. And then from there, everyone goes down to Florida. Mm. Now I'm generalizing everyone, but I'm right. speaking on, yeah. the, on the terms of like your bigger your bigger trainers, the the big trainer circuit. So Todd Pletcher, um, Chad Brown, Christophe Clement, um, Brad Cox, they kind of run this mm-hmm. East Coast um, circuit. Mm. So then you spend the winter in Florida where there's big racing and the price money is bigger. And then after Florida, you kind of then transition up to Kentucky for the spring where Keeneland has an April meet. And then you go up to New York again for the summer. So you mm. just kind of run that East coast line. Um, you go along with the weather as well. Now that's not saying that New York doesn't have winter racing because they do through Aqueduct, but just the quality and like the the level of racing differentiates throughout
3: the year. What do you mean by Aqueduct?
0: So Aqueduct is the name of a racetrack in New York. It's uh. in
3: Weeds,
0: I believe. I, I, yeah. of course it's, video. Um, it's in the it's in between long island yeah. and
1: uh, it's in new york please edit that out <laughs> at risk of sounding really naive mm-hmm. i would have thought that like you like i always thought the way the race industry worked was that you had like a trainer who had horses at they're stable and they had like a local ring that they used or track that they used to basically like train the horse etc and then like a couple times a year they would go to like a big event and race them you're saying that they constantly race all year these horses constantly race and we only really hear about them i suppose as outsiders when the big events occur Correct. Why do you they know, constant? Why do they constantly exactly race there. them? Aren't they just risking injuring the animal before the big
2: event?
0: Well, well, you know it depends on the horses, right? So, like, you could have a horse that that is not as talented, but the owner still wants to run them and have fun with them. So they might fit a smaller circuit, like um, in the Midwest. So there's tracks in. Um, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, West Virginia. So you can run at kind of a smaller circuit. And then if the if the trainer has a higher quality horse, they might try and target like the bigger races. But the single horse on average will run every four to six weeks if they're sound and they're happy and they're moving forward. Now, that doesn't mean that they're going to run throughout the entire year because a lot of times something might come up, they come down with a fever, they you know, have a small injury with the, with the hoof or something that sets them back. And so they might not run for a month or two months. And then you might send them to the farm to have a little break because they're kind of not mentally into it anymore. So you send them to have a little vacation for three months and then you bring them back into the track. So mm-hmm. even though there's racing around the country throughout the entire year from, the 1st of January to December 31st, it doesn't mean that a specific horse will run that entire year. So it all all depends. But trainers will generally have like a barn full of horses that will fit kind of slots all along the year because they need to make money uh, by having horses in their barn, paying stall rent, and then earning prize money as well to like keep their barns open.
1: Oh,
0: wow. How much, I mean, how much is a...
1: So we did a podcast a while back and we were talking about the economics of the career as a trainer. Mm. And the general consensus, uh, was that, um, that as you become a more famous trainer, the price, you, the, the demand to have you train for some, the, the demand to have you train someone's horse increases the more people who want you to train their horse and the less bandwidth you have to train horses, the more you can charge to train a horse because more people want you to train their horse than you're willing to train. Right. So, right. so how, I mean, I don't know the question I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so like how, I mean, how, how, I mean, how, do, how do they go about like, figuring out how do the trainers go about deciding um, which horses they're going to take? Like, is it, is there, cause it sounds like if, if they're not making a huge amount of prize money on these horses, right? I mean, very few horses make a lot of prize money. So I'm assuming if you've got a very expensive trainer because they're famous and therefore, their prices are high, but the horse isn't running often enough to make a lot of, to win a lot of prize money, or it might not be good enough to win a lot of prize money. Then I imagine most people are spending way more on the horse than they are actually making out of the winnings the horse is making. Is that true?
2: Correct.
3: Really? Right. So, so, <laughs> so why, why then? If, um, <laughs> because it's the love of the game
0: yeah. and the hobby um and a kind of a status thing like people love to say i own a share in a horse you know mm-hmm. it's it's exciting and you get the opportunity to potentially be in the winner circle and with this amazing thoroughbred athlete and that even if you're winning a $5000claimer or you're winning a group 1 worth $3 million like being in the winner circle is hard enough as it is so anytime that you get a chance to be there it is a huge thrill like your excitement is through the roof and you're cheering for like the staff the trainer this the grooms that you know got the horse there this the um exercise riders that helped get the horse there so for owners to um spend money on trainers whether they're there, very famous or not, it's more for like the love of the game. Mm. I
1: mean What do you mean the winner's circle? First
0: raising is not in is not generally for the economics.
1: Right. Right.
3: You don't know what the winner's circle is?
1: Well I I I understand what it means, but I mean in the sense of like, is there actually a tangible reality of the winner's circle or is it just that like is it you're one... no, no. like you know what I mean like it's like it's like oh you're in the winner's circle like that means that like there are certain events each year where the winners get invited along and they get together or is it literally just knowing that you're currently the owner of a horse that is winning and that makes you feel like you're part of this like uh, ethereal club no there
0: there is actually a winner's circle but most of the time it's like a half circle. So you're like in a, in a crescent moon type area. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, the photo of the horse gets taken with the rider on it and the trainer and the jokey, um and the groom are in it. And then any of the owners that are there, they're allowed to come into the winner's circle and get their picture taken with their horse, with their winning horse. And then a lot of the times um, the trainers will send out a a photo, like your win photo, but not all of them. A lot of times, other people will have, you know, you'll have to buy your own win photo. But it's essentially you are in the winner circle with your horse that just won, what? and you get to be like and the trophies
3: Yay! and sometimes all the roses. Right. Is that commonplace at say the smaller uh, races that occur, or are the those big winner circle photo shoots like the the place that everyone wants to get to? Is that only safe for the premier races?
2: Hey, are you an equestrian event organizer looking to put on your next clinic or schooling show? Pegasus is about to release its new event management system, which is a modern platform that makes it easy to accept entry registrations, receive digital signatures for your event paperwork, as well as manage the logistics and scheduling of your event. You can even digitally showcase your vendors and sponsors so that brands have much better visibility than the traditional logo on a fence. Pegasus has made it easy to run an event from start to finish with features designed for everyone involved, especially the riders who can now easily register and receive real-time updates. Gone are the days of running your event through Facebook or tech from the 90s. Check out the launch of the Pegasus event management system at www.pegasus.com. The Pegasus.app. That is www.thepegasus.app.
0: Yeah, like the big like rose blankets and the lily blankets um, mm. and the Black Eyed Susan blankets for Preakness Day. Those are for the big group one mm. races. Um, I mean, those those races are the top of the top. They're the best quality horses that are running that can compete. But every every horse that wins will get a photo. So oh, you wow. can go to your $5,000claimer at Thistle Downs and you can be in the winner circle and there's a photographer there to take your picture.
1: Okay. Wow. So they do Every so, race. so they do all of this Every. to be able to stand on the podium and hold the trophy up just once
3: there might not be a trophy is there is there a trophy
2: yeah yeah
1: it's not as if it's like a it's not as if it's like a year-long club that you're in and you get invited to special dinners it's like no like at the race you get to go stand and get your photo taken in the winners but
3: it's hard it's hard to get there right it's bloody hard to get there so so say it's really hard to get there well so there's a race nearby which i'm not sure if you're familiar with it's called charlestown uh, yeah, I know I'm trying to Sound. Yeah, and so the, so what I know about it as an outsider, I've actually never seen it, but I heard that it used to be kind of a dodgy track. They've cleaned up. There was some history of the thoroughbreds going to not the best homes after the fact. Now they have a really great group that takes the horses off the track and finds them new careers. Um, but like a place like that, from from what I'm understanding, it's a smaller endeavor. It's not some it's not like Keeneland, it's not like you know we're talking about Del Mar or Saratoga, but something like that, what can you expect there as you know like I guess if you're if you're in this game, like would you would you go there to help your clients? Would you go there to bet? Like where does that small local track fit into the the greater, greater economy of it all?
0: Um so that track would fit in with like a horse that is able to compete at kind of a mid to lower level. Mm. Um, and if you're with a trainer that likes to race there, um, then they will like suggest races to go there. Now, Charleston does have a, um, one or two days a year that they have some great estates. Mm. And so like, that'll be a bigger day. And so some of the bigger trainers might send in a good horse the track just for the day or for that race day, but it it's really interesting because as much as, um, as much racing as there is in the country, there is a racetrack and a level for every horse that's born. Mm. So even if it's down to like $5,000 claimers, there is a racetrack where that horse can compete at a $10,000 level at $15,000 level. You know, we all strive to be at the top, but Let's be honest, not every racehorse is, yeah, they good, can't all win all that fast. So, <laughs> yeah. you know, they, they, there is a level of horse that can race at Charlestown and be successful. And you know what? You can win a lot of money if you're just, if your horse is sound and consistent and they like to run.
3: Every yeah. weekend, like a 5K here, 5K there, you know, just kind of, yeah. really. What kind
1: of money can you yeah. make? What kind of money can you make at that level? 5k. It depends,
0: well there's a lot oh. of factors involved, right? So it depends on how sound your horse is, how many times they will run, what is your fees for your stable, mm. um, you know, it, it all kind of balances it out. The one rule of thumb in racing is that to make a million dollars, you need 2 million to start. Mm. So
1: Really?
3: It, yeah.
1: That makes sense.
3: Yeah. So in that example then so is is the 5k 5,000 claim. Is that the entry? So the lowest race that you're going to go to is starting out at the $5,000 claim. Is that how that works?
0: So like a $5,000 claim race is that every horse, so claiming races are selling races. So any horse entered in a claiming race is for sale at that price for $5,000. Oh. So what will happen is you can get a trainer to go and put a claim into literally a box. It's called the claim box.
1: And Very sophisticated. You, you
0: name it, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> put your name in. And um, if you want that horse, like you pay $5,000. And at the end of the race, um, doesn't matter if they win or if they come in last, you've claimed that horse. And so oh, now you're wow. the new owner of that horse at $5,000. That now means like the prize money might be seventy five hundred dollars, mm. right? Because prize money and purse money is um, generated through the betting public as well as entry fees mm. um, and track contributions, and that's like the big thing with casinos at the moment. With race tracks, is casinos contributing to the race tracks that they're attached to mm. um, to keep prize money and purse money up? Um, so just going back to the claiming races, then the purse money, say it's 7500 you the winner gets 60% of that. And then there's rates going down. So it's 40% of 7500 to the second place. And then, you know, 30 or 20% for third place. And then 10 or five or two and a half percent, you, they pay out mm-hmm. to like six or seven place, depending on how many horses are in the race.
3: Okay. But, oh, wow. I, I just figured when you said the claiming race, the, the $5,000 claiming race, that that's your prize purse at the end. If you win, but you're buying the new horse.
0: You're right. So if you are the owner of a horse running in the race at $5,000 mm. and then that horse gets claimed, then yeah, essentially you do win $5,000 because your horse is now off your books yeah. and you've got $5,000 in your pocket.
3: Do you? Can you just race your horse and not essentially sell them? Like, so, cause this, in this example, you're putting your horse on the track and they could no longer be your horse at the end of it. So are there races where you have that entry level race but you want to keep that like they're not for sale.
0: Yeah. So of course yeah. there's, um, different like allowance level races or allowance optional claiming. So you can put a claiming price on your horse or not. Those are generally like higher, higher bid. So mm-hmm. 50,000, 60,000 mm-hmm. up to claiming prices. So, um, but there are races that you can compete in and not risk losing your horse. The, the problem that you might run into, though, is if you drop your horse in um, to an allowance price and they're unsuccessful, well, as horses are unsuccessful, they, they will tend to lose confidence in themselves. And so if they lose confidence, then they don't perform as well. So um, a lot of times you might drop your horse to a level lower than you think he should be running at to just boost his confidence and hope that he wins mm. or hope that she wins, just so that you can improve their confidence and it's the less likely that they'll get claimed. Right.
3: That's, That's a hang on a second. So, races, I don't know, I
0: don't know. I, I, kind of as a, I don't know if I they're, missed... they're selling races, you don't have to like not every horse in every claiming race gets sold.
2: Okay.
1: All no. oh, right. Okay. So these are specifically claiming races.
3: For when, when a horse is yeah. claimed, so you put your you put your check or your name into the claim.
1: I understand that, but what, but like it's not as though every race that you put your horse in, it's up for being claimed. Like you specifically choose to put oh, your correct. horse in a race that has claiming available correct okay right but, i thought you were saying that like anytime your yeah, horse yeah, runs race, someone race, could buy it there's nothing well, you could do well,
3: about a it I claiming was like, race, right well that well, that's a, it, so is that a thing where these horses that go like if a horse goes into a claiming race could they be expected to go into many different claiming races so a horse could in theory go from trainer to trainer and barn to barn
0: exactly
3: wow that's amazing because i <laughs> yeah
0: If they, like, if they are claimed. Now, there's Mm -hmm. plenty of times that horses are, you'll have a full field of eight horses and none of them will get claimed out of the race. Mm -hmm. So that's like another part of the industry that is very interesting. There are people who spend their jobs Mm -hmm. looking at claiming races to try and claim horses and then improve them to Mm -hmm. make more money or like improve their claiming level or to try and like have a quick turnover of horses. So that is like someone's like full-time job. Like I'm Mm -hmm. a bloodstock agent. I focus on pedigrees, research, management, um, and, uh, recommendations for mating plans. But then there's somebody else out there that would really focus on claiming and they'd be like a claiming, um, like a claiming agent almost I don't yeah, know right. a, a direct term, but they would yeah. spend their days looking at claiming races, finding horses that might have pedigree to prove useful um, to flip into a November sale, like a breeding stock sale, um, breed them to something and get a full out of them and then put the full through a sale um, or a chance to like move them up um, in races. So that's like a whole nother, wow. not a right. whole nother realm.
1: Of so in, in the world of horse purchasing agents, there's kind of like two schools of thought. There is, do you believe in the bloodstock agents who believe in research and lineage, or do you believe in the people who buy based on data and proven track record of performance?
0: So that's very different because um, if you're an agent buying – foals and yearlings and two-year-olds, there's no track record on them yet. Right. They haven't been broke. They haven't gone to the racetrack. So that's where your pedigree and research comes in. Um, and, you know, it's also um, it's also some horsemanship, right? Like it's not just all data and papers. Like there's horsemanship to understand the confirmation of the horse and how a horse moves, um, how will that affect them physically on the racetrack and kind of being able to analyze them as um, potential injuries, what are the risks involved? Um, you know, you have a vet go over the horse um, before you buy them to see if there's any um, bone chips or OCDs um, or any sesmoiditis for tendon issues, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, you have you use your expertise as an agent for these younger horses that are not proven mm. to try and buy the best horse. Um, but but then there's a whole other section of horses and training sales, where that's where, yes, race record and some pedigree, but mostly race record and performance would come into play.
3: right. So are you focused on the younger horses then, or do you also tap into some of these older horses that do also have track records in addition to the great pedigree, et cetera?
0: Um, I do a little bit of Mm both. I do a little bit of everything. So, um, buying mares and foals, buying foals, buying yearlings, buying two-year-olds and buying horses and training. So Mm -hmm. I have experience, um, in all of the, all the facets of it. Um, however, it always comes down to the client and what are, what are their, um, goals in racing? Do Mm -hmm. they want a horse out of training to try and improve? Do they want a mare to breed out of, do they want a pin hook? Do they just want to buy a two? year old and go to the races? Do they just want a yearling and go to the races? Mm. So the clients that I have, um, at the moment are mostly like breeding and buying horses at yearling and two-year-olds Stage. Now, I have worked for um, clients before that have wanted horses in training um, with an idea of breeding them after. So you'd be focused more on fillies and mares. Mm-hmm. So there's all these kind of different angles that you can play. And again, it goes back to like what in whatever the client's goals and ambitions are for their own personalized racing experience.
1: Yeah. How often does a client know what they want? Sorry. How often does a client know what they want?
3: That's freezing. Not very often.
0: Yeah.
2: <laughs> so then you
0: kind of like lay out all of these plans yeah. and um, and say like, well, here are the options for this and this is what you can do here. And then this is what you can do in this direction. And what kind of, you know, what kind of floats your boat more? You know, you have some clients that really love the breeding game and want to breed their own racehorses and have their own successes of, um, having them from weanling, you know, having them from inception to foals, weanlings, yearlings, horses. Yeah. but now to get a horse to a racetrack, that's at least four years. Yeah. Right. So some people don't want to spend that much time before they have action. Right. That's where they might say, well, let's breed, but then get a two-year-old and then maybe I can have a little bit of racing action in the next year. Or, you know, you buy yearling fillies and they want to breed out of them eventually. But working from the yearling stage, um, you have like a little bit of uh, more time with them. But, you know, it's not as, um, it's not as like career, it's not as... I don't know how you say basically buying a yearling, you have a bit more time with them buying two-year-olds. They're almost ready, ready ready-made horses, ready to go straight to the races. Mm -hmm. So it really depends on what the client is interested in doing.
1: Have you noticed any patterns between, um, have you noticed any patterns in the approach to it? When you have an experienced buyer versus an inexperienced buyer, like what makes you immediately be like, okay, this person knows what they're talking about.
0: Well, to be honest, um a lot of it is confidence and coming across um that you know what you're talking about um and experiences as well. Like
1: no, so I so I mean I mean in the sense of like I feel like if when you when so when you meet a new client, um like
3: are you trying to say what they, what they like,
1: what, want the, to do? Yeah, what, what the client wants to do, have you noticed patterns in the way in which someone who's done this many times before understands the business, understands the process, there's a way in which they approach buying horses. There's like a science and a rhythm to it versus the person who's like, I think this is really, really cool and really exciting and I just want to get into it. So, mm-hmm. like, have you noticed like, w- what is that? What is the rhythm of an experienced buyer kind of look like or the, the program? for lack of a better term
2: um
0: that's hard because everyone kind of has like their own their own kind of like way of assessing horses and using tools out there to value the horses at one level or another so there's people out there there's you know a lot of the A lot of um, people and owners in the industry who are very analytical, um, you know, numbers people, you know, people in finances or lawyers or, or bankers or any sort of like logically thinking people. They love data. So there's there's um companies out there that measure stride length on the horses and they'll measure the size of the heart. And they've got all this computer stuff to measure the angles of the points of the horses and say like, this looks like a good, successful image. Right. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. And then you have, and you know, and some people love that. And so they, they thrive on that data and that information. And then there's other people that will just take a piece of that information and say, okay, that's good to know, but how do I feel about this side of things? Like what is the, you know, the height and angles mm-hmm. matter to this and not so much the heart size. So there is a lot of ways to get data out there. Um, but each agent would have, would be like individualized on in how they found things to work for them. So, and if an owner comes and says, well, I need an experienced agent, What do you, what have you done? As far as an agent goes, you get your reputation by what you've bought and what you've recommended. So as a young agent, I'm only... I've only just kind of started out buying for my clients. And right now my horses are getting to the racetrack. So really in the next two or three years, if my horses perform well on the racetrack that I had involvement in buying and recommending for them, then I could be a huge success. But if they don't, I could go... I could
3: flop. Yeah. Cause you, cause that means that you have the eye. So you're, so they're trusting in you to look at the different kinds of data sets that exist and people trust. There might be a little bit of this heart data. There might be a little bit of this stride data. I don't know what it is, but Kelsey has the recipe of what it takes to get me a successful racehorse. If they run on the track, yes. Yeah. Once they run on That's the track.
2: That's what I'm hoping
1: for. for what is, <laughs> what is the, um, what is the, uh, what is the window size time-wise as far as um, your reputation win or failure? So say, for example, if the horses you bought over the last four years and recommended over the last four years um, flop and you said like, you fail, how many cycles or four years does it take for you to get your reputation back? Or is it a four-year cycle? Is it a six-year cycle? Or is it like, you well, could flop it, that's it, you're done?
0: So, no. So, like, it's it's four years now, right? Because that four years ago was when I, I had uh, my first mating option and bought my first yearlings. So, those horses are now three years old, yeah. right? So, I've now since bought yearlings and two-year-olds behind that Mm. so they'll kind of like keep coming through the pipeline right so they're not going to judge me on what's happened just in the first year it's going to be judged on the next two or three years of the two-year-olds and the yearlings that I've bought behind those to kind of move them through and see what comes out of those groupings
1: right and if that doesn't go well and your reputation takes a hit how many years will it take you to for your reputation to become good again, assuming you do well,
3: or does it ever go? Yeah, it never depends. But is it ever, is, right. it ever yeah. is it ever bad or damaged, or is it just like oh, these horses, which could happen at to anyone. Say, I mean, say you were double the age, and then you had a bad year, you wouldn't be oh, absolutely, you wouldn't be judged for it because you would have like you know, it's like crops. It's not like every year you're going to have a, a plethora of and a. And an abundance yeah. of crops, right? So, is it something that you're judged harsher on because you're up and coming? So you kind of have to get in. I don't want to say perfect. You have to get it perfect, like right off the bat, to be able to continue. Whereas once you're already established, you can afford to have a bad year or two.
0: Yeah, exactly. Oh, so um... it's really kind of just like the up and running, and you know. Like the people with a lot of money are generally older people, so. They'd be like a little cautious, saying, okay, well, I want this 30, you know, 30 something year old buying. I don't know if I want to give them 50 grand. They're, they haven't proven to do anything yet. Whereas like a more experienced agent would have like more of a reputation under his belt of what they've bought or what they sold and their successes. So they might say, okay, well, I trust that he's, you know, got 50. I can put 50 grand with him yeah. and see yeah. what happens.
3: Yeah, I got you. Um,
0: but you know, at the same time, it's all a bit of luck as well, yeah. Being the right right place the right time and a little bit of luck um will will definitely go a long
1: way so is it so is it fair to say the first five years of your career as a bloodstock agent are like the most important it's like it's like Um, where like as
0: far as as far as like my networking and my relationships go absolutely so the people that I've been meeting the um, events that I attend to the way I um, the way I hold myself, the way I present myself to people in the industry, you know, that will hopefully lead to recommendations or references from other people saying like, look, I have too much on my plate, but, you know, Kelsey's done a really great job. Um, why don't you give her a call? She's looking for some clients, mm-hmm. you know, that sort of thing. So it's, it's kind of the first five years of how you come across to people and your experiences from what you've done up till now that will help kind of build your platform to then send
3: you forward. For- it's really no different than any other business yeah. in that regard. But what about in terms
1: of performance of the horses you pick? Like I can like so back to your point about like if you've got experience, there's a bit of forgiveness there. Like it makes sense to me that if you got if you've been if you've been buying and selling horses for 15 years and and you've been largely successful, and then you you recommend one horse and it flops, like I can imagine people who know being like, oh yeah, they had a bad pick. But if you're only four or five years in and you have flops, they're like, oh the shit, that person just hasn't got it. You know what I mean? Like, even though it's the same outcome, they could like, I could, I could understand how the first five years of your career could be when the, you know, the smaller circle of people wealthy enough to buy horses who probably talk to each other, they basically decide whether an agent has the ability to, has the, has the X factor or not. That makes sense.
0: Well, it all kind of like depends on your relationship with your clients. Like some people will stand by you and be like, look, I'm going to go in a different direction, but I'll still give you some money to buy some horses. Let's see if we can do something. Um, And then there's like, you know, for whatever reason, there are some people that are just not lucky together. So you can, you know, have a great relationship with a client and be like, you know, we're going to go, we're going to go big. You're with them for five years and you haven't bought them a winner. And then at the end of five years, the client says, look, I'm, you know, I'm draining money. Haven't had great success. Um, and the client and the the agent might say, well, look, like we just haven't been lucky together, like the compatibility or whatever. Cause I think it's something in the cosmos (laughs) (laughs) people are really lucky and some people aren't. So they just maybe might not clash, but then a new person comes along, might work, be more compatible with the agent in this terms of, of luck. But you know, like the, the clients really like to, um, be quite loyal for a lot of the time, like, you know, they'll kind of just stick by you and work through it or, or not. But if they're really unhappy with your services, whatever, then they'll move on to someone else. You know, it's like, um it's exactly like a real estate agent, right? Like you've In the process of selling properties, if you have a good experience with one real estate agent, you're like, great, let's have some, you know, have a good time, et cetera. But if you have bad luck with them, you're like, well, I'm going to try somebody else now. See if I have a little bit, no hard feelings. Yeah. Um,
3: And then they get the real estate agent where it's like, wow, I wasn't able to sell this, this property. And now this new real estate agent is not only able to sell this property, but they're able to sell it for, you know double of what we were expecting to sell it for. I'm sure that doesn't actually happen in real estate, (laughs) but you know, just something like that where it's like for whatever reason, they had the right people and the right time. But that being said, is there a lot of superstition in racing? Cause there is a little bit of luck. Really? What are, what are, what are some examples?
0: um you put me on the spot now but I know that there's a lot of superstitions uh-huh. um it really depends like some people will wear if their horse wins on a big day they will wear the same exact tie suit dress shoes broche pin or something every time that horse runs like the same exact outfit because they swear like that <laughs> that's the outfit um <laughs> That is
3: the outfit that they want on. Um, I wonder if that goes into when, like underwear. So it's like, I've been doing this for 60 years. <laughs> it's the same pair of underwear. I don't care. I win every time I wear it. <laughs> My lucky undies. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it goes that bad. I mean, definitely like a dresser suit. But. Yeah. Gotcha. Um,
0: so
1: uh, in, t- in that terms of... one of them. So considering that... Um, Considering that, you know, an agent and a owner or a, do you call them owners? Is that what you call them? Yeah. yeah. Owners, clients. Clients, owners. Considering that, um, you know, horses are expensive. So there's got to be a limited number of owners, clients out there. So, is there, is there any concern like when you talked earlier about your reputation? You know, you, your reputation can take a hit, or your reputation can go well. Reputation amongst who, and like, and does that inf- does that infer that the owner client circle is small enough? That they all kind of know each other and talk to each other.
0: Um, not so much there. It's more like on a professional level, um, of like the agents. Like you go to a sale and you see the same people at every sale around the world. Like I will see the same people in France in August as I'll see in September for, for the most part. Like a lot of the international agents, especially from Europe, they travel to the US and buy quite a few horses. Mm. So, um, where in the US, there will be like, there'll be more people. But again, like you go to every single sale, you see the same industry professionals at every single sale. So if you're doing well or you're not doing well, it spreads around there. And then from there, they speak to clients and owners and it just kind of goes there. But like, yes, there's like, um, you know, the access, like, that would be one of my, um, one of my issues is like the, the capability to be introduced to someone of wealth that would be willing to give me a shot at buying horses.
3: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so that's, you know, that's difficult because that pool is quite small and it is quite elite and you need the right kind of networks to even just get you in the room with people at that level. Now, at the moment, the the way like racing is trying to accommodate to make it more accessible to everyone is selling like micro shares in massive horses. So, um, being able to buy little pieces of like 0.01% of a horse But you get, you know, win photos, you get put into a lottery to go to the races, you, you know, get a a ball cap or you get a T-shirt or whatever um, to make it really kind of accessible and show the the general public that racing doesn't have to be exclusively for the wealthy. Like you Mm. can take a part in it as well. So here in the UK, um, I'm involved in a couple of racing partnerships um, with a friend of mine who's a trainer and like in supporting the trainer. You know, I bought a little 2%, but and I pay a little bit of money every month for a key, but it's great because you meet new people in the ownership group and I'm considered an owner here and you know, you have like the, the frills and thrills of it all. Yeah. So, you know, they're raising is trying to make it less elite, um, and financially burdening on people by spreading the risk.
3: Yeah, that's an interesting model. And it's something that I think every discipline is trying to do, which is Raise awareness, grow that exclusive group that you see, whether you're in France or Del Mar, et cetera, just a little bit bigger. And like you said, make it so that the masses can kind of contribute to it and get excited about it and then share it and then kind of demystify it. So I know we talked about this before, but what is a, what's a platform or a place or a way in which the average person could contribute to a racehorse? like a share, like just as what you're saying. Uh,
0: so there's a couple of, um, there's a couple of companies. The the big one right now in the U S is called my racehorse. Mm-hmm. Um, and they sell micro shares. They have micro shares available in authentic who won the breeder's cup classic and is now a stallion, uh, my, girl who's, uh, three-time Breeders' Cup champion and Eclipse Award winner. So she's, you know, top of the, top of the, top, cream of the crop. Yeah. Um, And you can buy into those horses, which is, which is really amazing. Now, there's also different public racing partnerships. If you search public racing partnerships online, where you can contribute like $5,000 for a share or $10,000 to a share, um, and you'd be part of like a much smaller partnership group of maybe only 20 people Mm -hmm. and so like that's where friendships start to get made and like you get invited to um different events that the racing partnership puts on um for example um bourbon lane stable or west point thoroughbreds or eclipse thoroughbreds like these are all big racing partnerships that operate with, um, like smaller number of groups of people for a larger financial contribution. Mm. Um, so at a 5,000 or 10,000 or 20,000, um, you can buy a certain level of share, but your group will be a lot smaller. The micro shares, your partners with 3000 people. So there's not really a ton of getting to know new people or it's like joining a club yeah. essentially. Yeah. It's a racing, it's a racing club.
3: Yeah.
1: Cool. So, when you said you said earlier that um, you said like a couple of minutes ago how um, you need to try and get introduced to uh, wealthy individuals to potentially have the opportunity to secure them as a client as a as a bloodstock agent. Um, is there a certain uh, profession within the equestrian industry that kind of is the bottleneck to those relationships? Like, is it the trainers? Like are the trainers the ones that basically have the ear of the clients and therefore as a bloodstock agent, you know, by becoming friends with trainers, that gives you the opportunity to have the meeting with the client or, or do you even, or is there a world in which like you even actually potentially like you, you convince trainers to hire you and then they advise the the client? You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, no, it it happens both ways. Like, um, depending on your relationship with a trainer, they could recommend one of their clients to use you as an agent, um, or the trainer might ask you to help them buy horses for their various clients at different price levels. Um, so it, it definitely works in both ways. Like that is one, that is one facet of the industry. But the problem is that, The, we seem to be like fishing in the same wealthy pool. Mm. And so, like, the same horse owners are still horse owners and they just kind of like just float around and are redistributed uh, or redistribute their their investments to people that they like or they don't like or who they've been, you know, set in with. So it's really kind of trying to gain access to those not in the industry to bring them in to then generate like a larger pool of investors and owners into racing and kind of spread the love essentially.
1: Yeah. So, so how does one go about convincing people who haven't been in before to get into it?
0: Um, I think I do a pretty good job of just like expressing my pure passion of the sport and love of the horses and the thrill and excitement of um. if you go to the races, even if I'm not even betting on a horse, seeing the horses come around the stretch, coming down the line to the finish line, your heart races and it's like, who's going to win? The excitement of it all. It just, it's overwhelming. And to have that, for nine times out of a a race card in a single day for, you know, a minute every day. Like that's amazing. So even I've been in this industry now for 13, 14 years, started at very, you know, at the bottom, working on the farms, um, handling the horses, getting my hands dirty, you know, mucking stalls the whole lot. And I've worked my way up and networked all the way up to running my own business now. But even being in this industry for that long like you have a connection with each one of those horses and running down the line and the potential to be in the winner's circle like you just get really excited and that that heart pumping heart racing feeling never seems to fade and I think showing my passion and love for it will help interest people through the door anyways
1: we will be right back with Kelsey in part two of this podcast
3: Yeah. did you guys meet in the UK or in France?
0: Uh, we actually met in Ireland. Oh. So we did um, a like a, an external, like a breeding course. So it was like six months of working and living on a farm in Ireland. And then we had daily lectures Monday to Friday um, to like further our education and like our networking and stuff of the industry. Um, and so we were on the same course together and we met there.
3: Oh, that's Ten so cool. Ago. And in the same worlds now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we were we were always like in the same world, just like on different countries. Yeah. And then in Ireland, we met. And then after Ireland, I went to Australia for like nine months before moving back to Kentucky. And he came back to London and worked in London for a while. And then he wanted to come to America to work um, because in our industry, it's great to like get like the international experience because it helps you, first of all, build your network. And second of all, it's great to like see how other countries prep horses, work on the farm, work sales, um, how their racing is because each country is so different in their different methods of training, racing, raising horses. And it's really good to kind of have an all around experience. So you can then, um, use your experiences for your future job or like whatever you want to do. It helps you like kind of define your knowledge and skill base basically. Yeah right so it's re- it's really encouraged and because most of the most of the year um it's quite seasonal so at least like working on horse farms you know you have from basically like January until June, which would be the foaling season. And then from June to December, it would be yearling prep and sales. And so you could basically do an entire year of just yearling prep and sales going from Northern hemisphere to Southern hemisphere, just kind of like rolling around like that And the same with breeding season. If you just loved, you know, mares and foals, you could do mares and foals all, all year round just going from the Northern hemisphere to Southern Um, and farms really welcome people like that. It's gotten harder with visas um, because like the UK, if you're going to work on a farm, like you, you need to like be sponsored and like most small farms don't want to sponsor you. It's all very expensive. Um, Same thing. Like in Australia, it's a little bit easier because visas are quite easy to get for us. Like I was able to get mine quite easy if you're under 30 and then then, you know, so it's a little bit harder now since like visas have started coming to play, but it's, it's pretty encouraged. Like if you get in with a big company, they can like sift sift you all around. And when
3: you say big company, do you Barnes mean all over big the world breeding operation? Sorry. Oh, so when you say a big company, do you mean a big breeding operation? Yeah, mostly. Yeah.
0: So like Coolmore, for example, Coolmore has um, is one of the biggest operations in the in the world for racing and breeding. And they have a massive stud farm in Ireland with a couple of satellite farms in Ireland. Then they have a farm in America. Then they have a farm, massive farm in Australia. Um, and then they have stallions everywhere as well. So like they hire people and they can like within their company, they can move them around to their different locations around the world. And then those people get experience all over.
3: Right. Right.
1: Why, why do, why do, um, breeding conglomerates for lack of a better term, why, why do they exist? Why do they have like farms all over the place and stuff? Like, what's the purpose Um, for having that infrastructure as opposed to a single place?
0: It just kind of, like, expands your... your outreach. So like Coolmore, for example, have stallions at all of the farms. And so they've taken their love and passion for horses, um, and they've built it and turned it into a business itself, a self-sustaining business itself. And so like from Ireland, the pool of horses is only like this big. And then you go to America and you have a different pool of horses and people are constantly moving horses back and forth to like kind of exchange breeding wines, exchange stallions. Um, but they've created it as a, Business, so like all their stallions are creating revenue, and so why not expand if you have the money and the capital to? So yeah.
3: they do. Are they taking their horses and having them race across, in um, basically go to different countries, or is it the operation in Australia primarily stays there and they wouldn't necessarily ship those horses to America to race?
0: Well, Australia, because it's so far, they don't usually come up to race, but sometimes like rate horses in Europe um, and America will go down to Australia to race. And if they go down there, they usually stay there. Um, and then the, they've done shuttling stallions. So like a lot of of horses in Ireland and England and America will stand in Northern hemisphere here. And then they would actually ship down and quarantine and go to Australia or New Zealand or South America and do Southern hemisphere breeding season. So some of the stallions they'll breed, like, I don't know, they can breed like up to 400 mares in a year because they'll do like. 200 or 250 Northern hemisphere and then ship South and then do another 200 or 250 in the Southern hemisphere. And they'll just like do that cycle.
1: Right. Is there a massive I mean, difference between, um, is there a, is there a massive difference between, uh, artificial insemination and like live insemination?
0: Oh yeah. The, if you're having a thoroughbred racehorse, it is in the stud book around the world that it has to be natural cover. Wow. So it has to be, um, it's a way of preserving the breed um there's a lot of actually one of the stud farms in Kentucky started doing um I, AI collections for quarter horses. Um, and so they were like breeding this stallion to like 250 mares, but then like collecting as well and selling his semen to do AI on quarter horse racehorses because quarter horses can have mixed blood um, and that's allowed in that racing world. But in thoroughbred racing, they, in order to keep the breed pure, they only allow natural cover. And okay. it's, it's a way to like, just kind of keep the stud books all aligned and all of the, basically anywhere you go, any stud farm, the matings are, um, video recorded. So like the mares checked the stallion, the right stallion is put up and like, it's all on video to make sure everything happens. Right. And then there's usually a vet on site that checks the viability of the semen after they dismount and like the dismounts, um, to make sure that the stallion has been like, ejaculated properly. Yeah. And then sometimes, like, on older mares that might be more difficult to catch, they'll reinforce. And so they'll take the stallion's dismount and then reinforce using kind of the AI method. Yeah, right. But oh, wow. it's only after they've been covered naturally.
1: And did this all start because there were like people um, selling like fake artificial uh, semen, like taking it from like an, a, a non Prize stain and and then pretending it was from a prize stain and that was kind of like diluting it or is, it, is this just always been the case? Like, um, like, it,
0: I know yeah. it's always been the case, but there's yeah, right. always been that fear of like bringing in other parts of other breeds into the bloodlines and then creating it not like so it's not purebred anymore. Yeah, right. which a lot of people think is the reason why um a lot of the thir- like thoroughbreds. Genetically, have started to become weaker because of inbreeding. You know, like we're all inbreeding. The thoroughbred breed itself comes from three horses originally. Really? That's it. Wow! It's a combination of three horses, and so then every thoroughbred in the world comes from this these three horses where it started.
1: Oh wow! Wow! What are the three horses? Do you know their names?
0: Um, it's the you're gonna. (laughs) <laughs> I'm going to test you here. <laughs> the Darley Arabian, the, um, I don't know. I'm going to have to look this up now. Go the for Darley, it. <laughs> the Darley Arabian.
1: Right. So basically they took three horses of three different breeds and combined them into one breed, and that breed became the thoroughbred. Correct. Right.
3: So can you even sell AI in, in thoroughbred breeding or is that um, nice?
0: you can you can to like warm bloods and like show horses and stuff like that, okay. um, but not for thoroughbred horses. Got it.
3: So if you have a thoroughbred operation and you see, say you're in you're in Australia and there's another thoroughbred that you really want to breed your mare to, who is based in the stallions based in America, you wouldn't be able to just ship that AI semen over to you in Australia and then have you know a, like a foal. No, you would have to wait for
0: the horse to like ship. That's why they do like um, Northern Hemisphere and Southern Hemisphere shuttling because they'll ship the stallions down. So like if you want American pedigree or American bloodline stallion bloodlines, you'll wait until that horse comes down to Australia, if he even does. Right. Um, and then that's how you would get that. And then the horse would come back. Okay. So it's the Darley Arabian, the Godolphin Arabian and the By- Barley Turk, the Burley Turk. B-Y-U. Rly,
2: yeah. So, I forgot
3: that Arabians mm-hmm. made up the thoroughbred. That's why they're so hot and crazy in their heads. Yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> right. So, those, all right. So, okay. So, one thing I don't understand is—is is, so going back to this idea of having um, the the one the conglomerate of having a farm in each country. So, so much of the equestrian world, uh, you know, is. The importing of bloodlines, like the, it, it, like the fact that a horse you're cu- you're bringing in a horse from Europe to an American horse to breed, and that builds the mystique. So, if you're also breeding horses, if you have, if this Irish farm has a farm in America, do they do they ship? American mares to Europe to breed and then the Europeans believe in the the excitement of having an American bloodline? Like, how does having a farm in each country change the dynamics between, like, the import of an international bloodline, for lack of a better term? Or is it... Um
0: so it, it, yeah, it does because actually, um, some of the best dirt sires in America actually are, um, like have really established the European, um, the European bloodlines of like top dirt of top turf racing. So there's like a lot of cross back and forth, um, and like the importation of like good, um, sound sort of American brood mares brings like a hardiness to European bloodlines where European horses, however, it's happened, like the breeds in Europe, like the horses, if you go to a horse sale in Europe, the horses are a little bit finer. They're a little bit more kind of fragile looking in the U S the thoroughbred is like, you know, Debo, like little quarter horse looking, they're very stocky, um, you know, good bone, thick, heavy bone. So like the developments of the horses have changed. And so like incorporating the American bloodlines and kind of confirmation and physicals into a European bloodline will help put kind of like stamina and a little bit more substance to the horses here in Europe and like vice versa. Like you go to the U S you have to take like a, quite a nice sound European horse, um, to go to the U S and breed to a U.S. stallion, but you'll probably get like a more turfy horse rather than like a dirt horse because you're incorporating a predominantly grass family into like a dirt pedigree.
2: Right. When you say
1: dirt, what do you mean?
0: so in america you run on dirt racing like oh, okay right, right right so yeah. in, in europe there's no dirt racing everything is on an artificial surface or it's on the grass right how does that compare and how does that affect
3: the the racing
0: oh it's it's so different it's so different and even the turf courses are different just um how the horses handle um like even as simple as like the size of their feet and like the shape of their feet like you might have like a small foot kind of like this, that can get through the dirt really easy. It just kind of like skips over the top. Whereas like some horses have like big plate feet and they will be more turf horses because they can like kind of surf over the grass better and like have a better grip of taking that away. Um, so it just, I mean, it it varies so much. Like it's, it's very different.
3: So w- when when a fall, well, I guess it, they would have to be developed. But when you do get a horse that say is ready to race, will will an agent or an owner or trainer anyone just look at their feet and then decide if they're going to be on dirt or on turf?
0: So at least, well, in Europe, you have no choice. Everything starts on turf or synthetic, um, just depending on like the time of year and like the class of horse that you have and where you want to try and set them up or start them out or something, Um, in America, um, the main mindset is like most horses, probably like 90% of horses will start on the dirt. And if they don't like the dirt, they go to the turf. And then they try them that way. Um, there is like some, some trainers will take the time to research into the pedigrees of the families. And if a lot of times trainers will have trained like the dams of the dams of the dams and like have maybe four generations of that family and say, Oh, I know this horse really well, because in the past, like his dam, liked to run on this, her sister liked to run on this, her sister liked to run on this. And so they'll know the pedigree and they'll know a surface that the horse should like, but you know, it's, it's a total toss-up um it's starting to be a little bit more popular that you would start a horse on grass and then if they do well on grass because it's a it's a um, kinder surface to the horses um, as young horses especially at two it's a kinder surface so a lot of some trainers might start them on grass see how they go and then be like okay
3: well let's try this dirt race Um, right okay so Do you do work with the after racing career for thoroughbreds? So for example, I know, I'm I'm not sure what it's like in Europe, but at least here, and especially in the mid Atlantic, there are all these groups like Cantor and, and I, and I'm not certain exactly how they get the thoroughbreds when they're retired and ready for say a new career in eventing or jumpers or whatever. But do you, do you as an agent work with some of those organizations to transition or know of people who do and how you know you can basically take a really great resource and then transition them into something else when they when their career is done.
0: So um I have in the past, um and I do I know people in various facets of the kind of rehoming facility, both in Europe and in America. And it comes down to like, um, if you have a horse that you want to retire, you then kind of reach out to these organizations and programs and be like, look, I'm looking for, um, I'm looking for a home to retire this horse. Um, he's so and so. They're sound, or they're not sound, or you know needs to recover from this, that, whatever. Um, so it's kind of like a you take the responsibility on yourself to reach out to these organizations. The organizations won't come looking for horses mm-hmm. because they're generally inundated with plenty. Um, and then if you can find somebody that will take them just, um, because they're looking for a pasture buddy or, you know, they're just looking for an an event horse themselves to like retrain. There's always that option as well. Um, so there's a couple of times where we've had horses just, um, at the farm I worked at, I used to work at for my old agents. We would take our retired horses there kind of like surf around and through some of our partners, racing partners, be like, does anyone know, you know, someone looking for a horse, like we have this horse that's, you know, pasture sound, or we'll be able to walk, truck, canter, He just needs some time off or something. And like kind of word of mouth spreads and people are always out looking to help these horses anyways, for the most part. Now you do have your bad stories of things happening to them, but for the most part, the industry is trying really hard to do to do right by them.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Oh. But it's all about like, you like, I have to make the effort to find them a home. Like those organizations won't come saying, "Oh,
3: hi, do you have a few resources race you need to retire?" <laughs> <laughs> well, it's probably now, right? Where they where they. The groups are, at least here, they're kind of around the racetracks. So I'm sure at this point, there's probably like a continued feed where the racehorse is is kind of done, ready for a new career. And then they will maybe contact these organizations that are in the area and maybe just do a shipment or something. Because it seems like as someone online who watches... Um, these groups and I'm constantly seeing like this new horse for adoption, this new horse for adoption coming from the racetrack. So it's almost like there's, they have these channels and they already have these race tracks and trainers that they work with. And it's just like, okay, this one's ready for you. Head over to such and such. Like, I don't know if that's a partnership per se, or it's because they're all local to each other. So it's easy just to send them to the, the, um, rehoming where they can kind of have some downtime and then get ready for their next career. But um, yeah, it was just I was curious because I know that that's something that like I've seen a lot in the past, and I'm sure yeah. since you're in the racing world, you probably hear it too. Or like you know what happens after these race horses are done. Yeah, for the
0: most part, you like it's kind of vicinity. Like you know, where's the closest the closest place to like send them on a trailer? Um, You know, if we had a retired horse here in England in in say Newmarket or something, you're not going to say okay like i know a retirement facility that's all the way up in like the north of scotland like right. you know <clears throat> yeah. now there probably is but it's not going to be like my first my first call, I'm going to follow, follow someplace like close to Newmarket. like what's kind of going there and then leave it to them to, you know, then contact. If there's somebody in Northern Scotland that wants the horse, when he's kind of let down and developed a little bit, they say, okay, this horse is ready to go to Northern Scotland. But if you're taking them off the track, you generally find them a safe place to go first, um, a farm or a location where they can just kind of like, be in a holding pattern. And then if you find a rehoming facility that will then train them, um, then you could send them onto there. But a lot of times when the horses come off the racetrack, they need like, you know, a week or two or a month or two just to like calm down and unwind or just be in a pasture or something before you can put somebody on their back again. You know, they don't necessarily always just transition that quickly. And the, and the retraining facilities as well, like people taking on that challenge, they don't necessarily
1: want them that fast. What was that? My phone. That's your ringtone? Yeah. That's horrible.
3: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like an alarm.
1: <laughs> you hear that multiple times also, a day? Why do you do it's, that to yourself?
0: <laughs> it's also very loud. I don't know why it's so loud. <laughs>
1: are you, oh, actually, quickly, are you on a Mac? Yes. Do you want to hit Do Not Disturb? Because like we can keep hearing your um oh,
0: your yeah.
1: email notifications coming in. Sorry. That's all right. Uh,
3: okay. Is it possible as a, as a private citizen to go directly to the racetrack and get a horse? If so, if you have an eye and you want to be able to buy them direct, not have to pay a markup for the transition facility, but just that, you know, they find someone that they like and they see that they're sound, they want to take a risk on them. Is that a viable option?
0: Mm, You probably wouldn't be very well, um, appreciated, Because like, because like, if you, if you as a public, public person walk into the racetrack and be like, oh, this one looks really nice. I mean, that could be like a grade one winning horse, or it could be like a $5,000 claimer. But unless like a trainer is like, look, I got this horse that needs a new home. He's ready to go. You know, trainers don't really want to give up horses. Trainers are the horses in stalls means they get paid. Right. So like the more horses they have, the better chance they have of getting paid, better chance of running in races. So you can't just really walk in and like choose a horse because it's like, they have to then talk to the owners as well. And yeah. So do you every owner sell- would be like, Oh yeah, I'm ready to sell my 5,000 claimer.
3: Yeah. But so how, how would one know to be able to get a horse that's ready for a different career that like they are looking to give to one of those, um, like adoption areas, right? Like the, the rehoming places, or do you, or can you not even go direct? you have you, you as like just a citizen would have to go to that third party organization.
0: No, like you could. I mean, the best way that I would recommend doing it is like to reach out to um, racing partnerships or reach out to um, trainers specifically and say, hi, my name is whatever. Introduce yourself. And like if you have any horses that are looking for a new home, I'm looking for. A horse to rehome or right. whatever, and just like being able to like network and put your name out there as far as you can, because you'd be surprised. Like, I mean, the racing partnership I used to work for—they've just rehomed like two of their racehorses based off of like people reaching out to them and saying, "Like, I've been following this horse's career. I really love him." Or, you know, one was like the um, like the yearling prep person for them. They love that horse. And so they've been following them on their career. And so they just kind of like, you know, we'll reach out to these racing partnerships. And if the time comes, then, you know, we always keep a, we used to keep a log of people who contact us for horses and be like, okay, we have this horse. Would this fit you? We have this horse. Would this fit you? So, you know, just kind of, yes, you can go to the different organizations to um, have a horse that's rehomed or retired off the racetrack, but like just putting your name out there and contacting racing partnerships individually and trainers would be, you know, Yeah. Cause
3: I could see if you do it that way, just as you said, if you reach out to them directly, then you, can widen your pool and then you don't have to pay that marked up price that the person or organization is inevitably going to charge when they get the horse and then set them, you know, settle them down a little bit and then do some training. So what could have maybe been a $1,000 horse straight from the trainer ends up being maybe a five to $6,000 horse because they have put in some time and food and training into them. So no, I think that's a exactly. good advice. Um, we're
1: gonna- um, <clears throat> and we can fix this. I'll, I'll fix this in editing. We're jumping around a bit, but back to when we we're talking about the international stuff. Um, one other question I have for you is, is the bloodstock community or horse trading community, et cetera. Are you guys starting to discuss or be involved with international, like new markets, like China, et cetera?
0: Oh, Absolutely so what is um, what is the current what's
1: everyone thinking about it at the moment?
0: Um well, China's in the process of building like ten or twelve race tracks in mainland China. Um, there is a very um, vivid uh, racing industry in Hong Kong but that's obviously not on mainland China. Um, Japan is very active and they're quite um, strict markets. So horses like um, horses coming in and out of those countries have to follow very strict rules of like uh, physicals and vetting and come from, you know, the whole, the whole shebang. So, but the Asian markets are very active in racing and continuing to be.
1: Right. And, and what are the, what are what are you, uh, equine racing professionals in the West doing about it? Slash. What are you like? What's the, what's the discussion? Like is are there businesses that are setting up or actively trying to pursue those opportunities and be, get involved? Or is it all kind of like, we know about it. We're excited about it, but it's still over there and we're over here.
0: No, it's I mean, there's people that are solely buying for Hong Kong and Japanese buyers and they'll come to Europe to buy horses or they'll go to America and buy horses. Now, a lot of the um, the Japanese people would have their own um, agents and their own people that would go to those sales as well um, and buy off them. Um, and down to Australia as well, is a huge market for the Hong Kong and Japanese horses to, to travel to. Um, there are some agents that have only like Hong Kong or you know, Japanese clients. Um, but then there's a lot of those people that also reach out to European agents on their own and contact them via, you know, social media or messaging or whatever kind of starts. Are,
1: are there any issues with, um, those, those, uh, buyers coming into the market and a lot of them being extremely wealthy? Are there any issues with their presence, like inflating the market, the prices? Et no
0: people. I mean, people love them because they're coming and buying horses. Um, it helps, it helps the whole thing kind of turn around and continue to, to, make it like a larger international market than it was when we didn't have Japanese and Chinese buyers.
3: Yeah.
1: Right. Do you but, know what, Oh, so, but, but they're not coming in and like just outbidding everyone. and pissing um,
0: So the last few years, the Japanese have been really strong in buying top race mares in America and absolutely outbidding everybody. So like, Um, We've had some really big race mares that were really successful ship over to Japan and they like won't. So those like bloodlines and those crosses have been now gone to Japan. And it's unlikely that they'll come back into the American market unless like it's one of their offspring. So yeah they they're very competitive and they they want to improve their breeding stock and their racing organization as much as everyone else does, so the Japanese and the Hong Kong buyers, well mostly Japanese would come in and buy like the best that they absolutely can buy is the best, and then they bring it back to Japan and breed um successful resources
1: and and the industry's not worried about this no. Really? Interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I just, I would have thought, I mean, I completely understand how the person who's making the sale and getting the best price ever would be stoked, right? Like that's, you I mean, as, as an individual buyer and seller in the market, that's a great outcome. But as an industry on the whole, or as like the American bloodline, you know, the bloodline association, whatever it's called... I can imagine there being conversations about like, yeah, this is great in the short term, but what does this mean for our industry in the long term if our best bloodlines are being taken out of our market and taken overseas? And eventually that's going to turn into a Japanese breeding program that's going to result in a competing bloodline uh, market, which means that less people might buy from America in the future, they might start buying from the Japanese bloodline breeding programs, which means America's going to get less market share, Europe will get less market share, et cetera. Like, I not, so those conversations at that level aren't quite happening yet. It's more just still exciting. Everyone's just still kind of excited about being able to capitalize on the new buyers in the market and the crazy prices they're getting. Yeah.
0: Um, not really. Um, there there's those conversations are definitely happening within the industry, but it's just, it's kind of like a wave. So like for a long time, everyone came to America to buy dirt pedigrees and bring them over to Europe and Japan. And like at the moment, you might see more European and Americans show up in Japan to buy horses there and bring them back over to this side of the, of the world. Um, at the moment, there's another big wave that's going on is like the turf racing in america is growing exponentially and so to find like the best bloodlines in that a lot of americans are coming over here to europe to buy yearlings by european stallions and european bloodlines and bringing them over i mean i think there's like 150 yearlings at the yearling sale last october that went and sold to america out of a catalog of like 450 right yeah like there's this huge kind of wave and the industry is interesting because it's very ebb and flow, right? So like if one market is ebbing, another one is flowing, but it all seems to kind of like come back and everyone sort of like dips their toes and everyone else and everywhere else to try and um, get like the best bloodlines back or to get the best physicals back and that sort of thing to really, that's what makes racing. So international as well. Um, it's so easy to fly, it's easy to fly horses and transport horses for the most part. And, you know, if you have people that are willing to pay for it, then it's why not really? So it's not
3: like Japan and China are taking over it. They're more just adding another pin on the map to be able to be part of this bigger ebb and flow, as you mentioned. Right, exactly. Yeah. Now, like mainland China is not,
0: is not necessarily operating races at the moment because in mainland China, it's illegal for gambling and for racing at that kind of level, but they're working on building these racetracks and having facilities like this. Um, so, I mean, cause like the Hong Kong market is, is tremendous. It is very competitive and the money that, that that Hong Kong is bringing in from racing is, is amazing. Um, they've started this, um, it's called the world pool, which was created by the Hong Kong jockey club and now is in partnership with over 60 international partners from 27 racing jurisdictions. This is for people to bet on 17 different racing days around the world and allows horse players from all over to bet into a single pool. The money bet this year at Royal Alaska was 178 million US dollars. You can see the impact it has. It's, it's been such a success this year.
1: Wow. Out of interest, as a... um we did a podcast recently on the burgeoning um, Chinese uh, sport horse market. So show jumpers, um, eventing, etc., hunter jumpers. Um, and considering that so many, so, you know, there is a direct link between the two because thoroughbreds are usually bought to go into that afterwards. Is there any, um, is there any like uh, conversations or, you know, there are any conversations taking place about um, people in the the racing industry looking to get involved with the show jumping industry in mainland China, considering that that is allowed because there are no gambling restrictions.
0: Um, Not that I'm aware of, but I'm sure that it's happening, but it's not like, like I haven't come across anybody basically taking racehorses and selling them for show jumpers in mainland China yet. Mm -hmm. So I mean, that is an interesting kind of avenue that could be explored further by other people in my industry, but, um, I'm, I haven't, I'm not too much aware of that, but it's interesting actually. Yeah. Yeah. Do
3: you ride? Or are you just a little on everything?
0: no I do I do ride um when I when I can or when I have an opportunity to um I rode as a kid wasn't very good at showing so I played polo for a while in college and then um
3: that's right you were at a on the at UMass I knew that with the polo yeah yeah um, you, you're currently riding too when you get a chance
0: I mean if I'm presented with a horse yeah absolutely <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's hard i actually um for a brief period of time i worked for hyde park stables no sorry for ross nye stables in london and it's one of, london is one of the only cities left in the world that you can ride in a public park and so i worked as a tour like a tour guide but like it's a pony ride um for clients taking them through hyde park and riding through the center of london so hyde park has like five miles of trails around and i was able to ride. I was working like one or two days a week, um, taking customers mostly on lead line, but if they could ride, we would like take them out and we would just walk along the pass or like go for a jog or a canter, um, down one of the main kind of straights. And that was really fun.
3: Um, park so. right in front of Buckingham palace. Is that right?
0: Yeah. It's like oh. right next to that, but it's like right in front of Buckingham palace. Yeah.
3: That is really cool. So that's only in London where you're able to go and take horses and just casually walk around in the public. Yeah. I, I heard, I'm not sure. Don't quote me on this, but I think Tokyo, there's
0: a place that there's a park, a public park that you can do that. Um, you used to do, you used to be able to do it in New York city, but I think they, they stopped doing that maybe like 15 or 20 years ago because there was too many bicycles, um, people on bikes and pedestrians that, were um, endangering the horses and the horses being scared and stuff like that so they've only got the horse carts now but they used to have like riding lessons in like in New York City yeah in Central Park they said they're cool
1: well now that we've uh, discussed the industry at large um how let's let's go a bit more into like I would love to cover like the more granular side of it so that if there are people listening who are young aspiring horse agents, for lack of a better term, who want to better understand the actual lifestyle and the job. Can you um, give us a bit of background about how you got into it?
0: Um, So I started riding when I was a kid. Um, I grew up going to Saratoga Racetrack. Um, every summer and betting on the ponies um, with my family. And um, from there, I just, I kind of grew a love of horses and wanted a job in horses someplace. Um, I wasn't very good at showing. Um, and my uncle is in the industry. He has a farm down in Kentucky where he spends six months and then takes his takes his um, breaking and training horses and goes to Florida for six months. So he does like Six months in Florida and six months in Kentucky. Um, and he suggested that I do um, some yearling prep in New York to kind of get my experience um, working at the yearling horse sales. I did that for two summers and then graduating college. I had an opportunity to go to an internship in Kentucky called the Kentucky Equine Management Internship, um, where I worked on a farm. Uh, for six months, I attended lectures once a week and it's technically, uh, a college level course. So I could have used it for college credits, but at that point I'd graduated and I just kind of worked my way, um, in the industry, working on farms and networking to kind of decide where I wanted to go. And I just kind of like followed the opportunities as, as they came up. So I did, um, I was recommended to apply for the Irish national stud with which got me to Ireland. Um, from Ireland, I was able to um, work on the stud farm, attend lectures as well, explore my network, and then went to Australia, was in Australia for nine months working the breeding and the sale season. Um, when I finished that, I decided to go back to Kentucky to find a job on the more business side of things. I'd worked 11 years on a farm by that point, And I had wanted to change the kind of direction in the industry I wanted to go. So I've got an internship working for bloodstock agents. And that's how I got into learning the more business side of things rather than like the horse management and uh, horsemanship side of things.
1: Right. Um, right. So just to break that down a little bit further, so there is so a lot of a lot of the um, equestrian careers, such as becoming a trainer or running a boarding barn, etc. It's all kind of like be around people, you know, get some like experience, train under someone, get some clients, try your own thing. It sounds like when it comes to the um, being a, a bloodstock agent, there's more of a professional infrastructure in place and courses you can do and as you said like the the stud program in Ireland that is like set up to help create a funnel of people who are professionals in this space is is that is that the case and if so what are the sort of those infrastructure building blocks look like if you were say for example you were a 16 year old kid who wanted to go into this and rather than looking at going to med- into medicine being I want to go to university, get an undergraduate degree, then do my pre-med and then go into med school and then get my med job. Is there an equivalent of that sort of um, path in the bloodstock world?
0: Um. There's so there's programs like set up at universities. Um, The University of Arizona has a really good racing program. Uh, The University of Louisville has a really good racing program where they can guide you and like educate you on kind of working on a business side of things or a business plan and provide you with opportunities to intern at various tracks or um, organizations to help kind of direct you on where you want to go. Um, I have to say that like in racing, I feel like it's one of the industries that you can start at the very bottom mucking stalls um, and the people that you meet by mucking stalls and working hard will help you kind of grow in the space that you want to go in. Um, You know, there's not like a direct path, but you can start at the very bottom and then work your way up to any sort of management positions or ownership positions or bloodstock positions Um, just by being around um, the horses and learning from kind of the basics to wherever you want to go. But there's not necessarily like a direct education plan. It's all kind of you know, you want to work on the racetrack, you start by walking hots, um, mucking stalls, being a groom. Then from there, you can, you know, gain the respect and the experience to then be an assistant trainer, um, or a barn foreman. And then from barn foreman, you can be an assistant trainer, um, and work more directly with the trainer. And then from there, you might want to go out on your own and be a trainer. So there's all sorts of different kind of paths that you can go. And I think the best, if you're starting out and you don't know where you want to go, just to have like a wide range of experiences of working on a farm, breaking yearlings, if you can ride um, just doing yearling prep, foaling mares, um, working in an office um, as far as like doing admin work of paperwork and contracts, understanding that sort of thing, working for a bloodstock agent and realizing how much, not realizing, but like working for a bloodstock agent and being able to understand the research that goes into the decisions that are made for mating plans or for sales work for how you're going to advise your clients. So there's lots of different avenues that you can take, but I feel like the best advice I could give somebody is to, um, just like pick a place to start and try as many things as you can before you like, and see kind of where you want to go. I worked on a farm for 11 years and decided I didn't want to drive tractors anymore. I wanted to try the business side of things. Now, if the business side of things didn't work out and I didn't enjoy this side of, of the industry, I probably would have gone back to falling mares because I really enjoyed the, that process of the, of the business. So I think it just kind of, the more experiences you have, the wider network that you have to work with, and you'll be able to kind of like find your feet of uh, the, the area you want to explore and do.
1: So what was the um, the the Irish stud program that you got recommended for and ended up going into what what was that?
0: So that's called the Irish National Stud Breeding Program. Um, it takes uh, anywhere between 20 to 25 students from around the world um, to come for a breeding course where you live in a dorm setting um, on the farm and you live and work with the other students in, in the program um, and you rotate from different yards so like you'll have experience handling stallions you'll have experience um working with the yearlings working with barren and maiden mares working with foaling mares foaling at night um and then also a little bit of admin work so like you spend two weeks um, every, sorry, you spend every week in a different area on the farm, uh, just kind of getting the experience there. And then at night you would have lectures and your lectures would range from any sort of reproduction to business planning, to stallion management, to, um, race course management. You know, you kind of just cover all sorts of facets of the industry and you would have guest lecturers come in, which then helps you expand your network even more.
3: Yeah, it sounds like an amazing program. Do the universities offer something similar or is it something like when you had to go to a non-university program in another country to get this kind of really great hands-on experience? But would you say that the universities have something that's similar to this?
0: So that's where the um, Kentucky Equine Management Internship is very similar because it's set up uh, in a very similar way as the Irish National said, only it's based in Kentucky. So Lexington, Kentucky is the hub center of um, breeding and racing in the U.S., Um, there are some of the most, um, prestigious, uh, breeding farms in the area. And so depending on what session you take, you can do the Kimi program for an entire year. You can do six months from January to June of focused on breeding and stallions, um, and folding mares. And then you could continue on from June until December doing breaking and training or yearling prep and working in the horse sales. So it gives you then an entire year of working in the industry and meeting people working on a farm, give you that experience of of that sort of world, um, for then for you to then go and expand on, um, from there. Also very similar. You have lectures once a week, you have assignments you have to do, and you have guest lecturers that come in to then, um, present you with different topics.
1: Does, do most, do most prominent, uh, racing do most, pro, do most countries with a prominent racing industry have an equivalent of one of these programs?
0: Um, so at the moment, um, there's a couple of programs. So the Irish national Stud was quite a difficult program to get into because it's, um, there's quite an application process. Yeah. Then there's one in England called the English national stud. Um, very similar idea. You live and work on the farm and have courses and do an education. Yeah. And then, um, Sheikh Mohammed has put together a course that's called the Darley flying start course. And that only takes two 12 people from around the world onto a two-year course program where they travel the world and spend time in different countries um, learning about the business and coming up with a much more intense curriculum than what the Irish National Stud or English National Stud or the kimi program would have. But that's a very um that's a tough program to get into. Very well known and successful and many successful people have come out of that um that program. But that's
3: quite intense. It almost sounds like a Y combinator for the thoroughbred breeding industry.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Where
3: they got where yeah only only the select few can go in and then you have this amazing a uh, very um focused program and then by the end of it you're kind of at the top of your game and you can kind of pick and choose whatever you want to get yourself into. But how yeah. how do you apply? And like what are is there age restrictions? Are there certain criteria that must be checked before you're considered a candidate to be part of one of these programs?
0: So for Kimi program, um, just kind of having general horse experience, um, the Irish national stud and the English national stud are not like degree dependent. So it's not like you have to go to university, the age restriction, I think for those are 18 or 19, um, up until like my course, we had a 40 year old vet from Japan that was sent over by the Japan racing association to learn about the Irish breeding um, and racing industry, so yeah. it kind of like can vary, and people from all over the world will access these programs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's it's not it's not restrictive, but you know, having experience on a farm or working with horses is definitely you know a, a yeah. kind of big factor.
1: It's not as if you can just pat your way into it. It's kind of like you need to be able to afford it, but on top of that, you also need to have put in some dues beforehand to prove that you're mature enough and experienced enough to take the program seriously, as opposed to a 19-year-old college kid just paying their way into it.
0: So the Kimi program, like you could come from any sort of background. Um, You know, I had kids on my course that were from... Uh, Western backgrounds or show jumping and the barns that they worked on were pony club barns or just their home farms. Um, and they were all coming in from like university. So everyone was ha- getting a degree of some sort, but, um, for the Irish national stud and the English national stud and for the flying start course, um, having experience on like a thoroughbred specific breeding or racing, um, facility would give you a higher leg up because, whether you like to admit it or not, like the show jumping and the Avengers or the Western world, like dealing with those types of horses is very different to dealing with the thoroughbred breeding and racing industry horses. So those stud farms for thoroughbreds is much different compared to like what your your pony at your farm or your pony clubs or that sort of horses that you're dealing with on a daily basis. Um there's kind of a different attention that you need to pay for it. There's different um, like methods or techniques of handling the young horses. You know, you go into a yearling operation and you've got 20 yearlings, colts and fillies to get ready for a yearling sale. Well, some of them are like this big, you know, small, and some of them are massive. Um, but learning how to handle them and their personalities and is quite a challenge in itself. And if they want to take off with you, they're going to take off with you and thoroughbreds they definitely have a mind of their own. Um, yeah. They're not going to be like your your draft pony on the on the side of the road that wants to just take you to grass. No, these things will take off on you. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> there's, definitely, there's definitely a learning curve. The first time I did yearling prep, um, I showed up in sneakers. They were white sneakers. I thought they were old. Capri pants. And a white t-shirt that was just like, I thought it was just a, a crappy t-shirt and the yearling manager looked at me and said, are you going to the mall? And I was like, no, <laughs>
2: <laughs> no.
0: sure enough, not 20 minutes later, my first experience handling a yearling Philly, trying to put her on the walking machine. She decided to take off on me because the rule was never let go of your horse um she took off on me and dragged me through an entire pile of poop and mud. <laughs> So my white sneakers, my white shirt and my capri pants at the time ended up covered in poop and mud. And I will never forget it. It was like such a life lesson of handling these horses that they really, there's, there's no stopping them if they want to get away from you. And I tried.
3: (laughs) That's so interesting that the rule is to to never let them go because in the sport horse world, and especially in a pony club barn, it's always let them go because you don't want to be dragged. So why is that?
0: Um, Because you don't want to risk them running into fences. Like if you can hang on to the horse, you hang on to them. Um, I obviously let this horse go because she dragged me through some piles. Um, But you generally, when prepping yearlings, you don't want to let go um, because you don't want to risk them going through fences or getting themselves hurt. You know, they're getting prepped for a sale. And so like, they're supposed to be earning money for you, yeah, right. Th- right? The,
1: the thoroughbred is lying. You will heal. We will lose money if that horse. Is yeah, in yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah. Oh
3: wow, they're like they're like wild, powerful, and very fast toddlers with a mind of their own. Like yeah. you, you haven't seen yearlings Sam. so no. like they're just. <laughs> yeah, you've seen he's seen the the calm giraffes on the side of the road that you can <laughs> give them the reins and they'll be just fine. But these, yeah, that would be fascinating. Yeah. No, okay. So
0: very different.
1: <laughs> so just to uh, finish this off, because by the time we uh, put this together, it'd be quite long. Um, for those people who love everything they've heard about it so far, and really want to get into it. Um, once you have established yourself uh, like you have, and you are a bloodstock agent, what does the day-to-day job actually look like? and what are some of the lifestyle implications of the job so for, and i mean that an example of like if you if it's seasonal you have to travel a lot does that put strain on your ability to like on your relationship does that put strain on your social life etc like what are some of the what are some of the pros and cons of the lifestyle and what does the actual lifestyle look like day to day
0: um so my day to day looks like um following up on race replays um from horses that have run the last few days to looking at the horses that are running today Um, both here and in the U S kind of always on the lookout for horses, for your clients that they might want to buy privately. So private purchase is like a big um, is a big proponent of the, the bloodstock industry. So constantly looking at horse race records and research in that sense. Um, At the moment, we're getting ready for the first yearling sale in Europe um, which is in Deauville, France. Um, So going through the catalog, researching pedigrees that I definitely want to look at um making notes of horses that I know family relations of um and then the time of you know time for sale time comes um you have the seasonal work so on your season basically from September to December I don't live in my house I travel between Kentucky Ireland England Um, in France for the entire four months. Um in a normal year from now until this Christmas, I like don't really talk to my family. So it's, you know, that one of the cons is uh, you're very busy um constantly on a plane and traveling. Um, however, I love to travel and I have family and connections all over the world. So I get to catch up with people in the various countries that I stop in. So that would be that's like a big, that's a big part of it.
1: For that reason, is it a young person's game? Like do people age out of it or try and set themselves up to like have someone else travel for them by the time they want to have like young kids or a family, et cetera?
0: Um, Sometimes, or they just try to, kind of alter the business model. So if you are going to all of the European sales and American sales, well, maybe you'll just go to like the biggest American sale and like the biggest European sale, or you'll try and um, ask someone to give you a list so that you are like working maybe a shorter sale, or you kind of hone in on your list a bit more so that you're not spending as much time at the sales. Um, as you would if you're normally, if you're normally there, it's, um, the thing about the, the racing industry is that it is a lifestyle industry and you can be working on the weekends. You can be working during the week. Um, my busiest days are usually a Saturday or a Sunday because that's when the biggest racing is on. So I'm either at the racetrack or watching racing or, um, traveling to the races during the week. Um, so, you know, you have to, If you're going to work in the industry, you have to be okay with it being a lifestyle industry. It's not a Monday to Friday, nine to five job. It's an all day, every day, eat, breathe, sleep, live it sort of thing. And as far as relationships go, um, I'm very fortunate that my husband is in the industry with me as well. And so having someone to understand the challenges um, and the time away from each other. is very important. So for example, I'll go to Kentucky for three weeks and then come back and see him for like three days before he goes off to a sale for a week. And then I maybe follow, you know, another three days later, but then, you know, we both travel to a different country for another sale. So having someone to understand that is really important.
3: Yeah. Right. Do you find yourselves going to the same sales and traveling to the same places or do you have very separate clientele and therefore have to go to different places for different obligations
0: so we generally end up in the same countries at just different times. So for example, um, we're both going to travel to Kentucky in September, the sale in September is two and a half weeks long, but I'll be there for about three weeks. He'll only be there for about a week. And then he'll come back to England and I will go straight to Ireland from America where he'll probably be in Ireland for like two days. And I might be there for five days and then I'll come back to England. And we'll both be in England for two weeks of the English sale. When then I go back to America for two weeks and he doesn't come for three weeks to America for that sale. So we end up in the same countries, just not necessarily the same amount of time. Right. Generally. Just
3: two ships in the night.
0: Yeah. Our downtime is like from January, January, February, March is when it's quite, you know, pretty quiet. The racing in Europe is, um, is not going on as much. Um, racing in the U S is a little bit less as well, but as soon as April and may come, we hit the ground running. We're at race meetings all the time. Um, going to the sales, like two-year-old sales start in April and then yearling sales start in July and August. And then it's, onwards and upwards.
1: Is it, is it quite common that, um, people in your line of work, um, uh, date and marry other people in the line of work because of that?
0: Um, generally, but not always. Yeah, right. It's, it's hard to understand the commitments that you kind of need in this industry without having someone that experienced it or understands it at some level. Yeah, for sure. I can
3: see that. Yeah, do you right. think you two will ever join forces and then operate out of the same, you know, like Atlas Bloodstock LLC? Or do you think you're always going to have your two separate businesses and you prefer to keep it that way?
0: <laughs> um, I don't know. We'll have to see. Yeah.
1: <laughs> uh, one last question. Is it fun trouble or is it, oh, it all work?
0: No no it's it's fun. The great a great thing about the racing industry it is such a social industry. So it doesn't matter the sale you're going to, the racing event you're going to. Um people love to have a good time and whether you're going out for drinks and dinner after the races or enjoying a day at the races or after the sale you kind of get together with friends who you've uh haven't seen in a long time, you know, you always end up having a good time. So like Yes, it's a lot of travel and it's exhausting. However, I love it and I I wouldn't want it any other way.
1: Awesome. Okay. Thanks
3: so much, Kelsey. Thank you, guys. It was a pleasure. I'm so happy to have uh, joined you on this adventure. (laughs) There's just so many fascinating aspects of the racing world that I think not only did I not know about, but I'd say the average person has absolutely no idea that this exists. I mean, did you? No. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I'm so excited.
1: Okay, well, um, we'll uh, we'll end it there, and uh, we'll uh, spend the next. Uh, I'm probably. I'm hoping to actually release this podcast. Um, uh, maybe this week or early next week. So I'll edit over the next few days, and I'll let you know when it's up and live, and we'll go from there.
0: Cool. Well, thank you guys. I really appreciate it. I hope I didn't sound like an idiot. No, you sounded <laughs> so excellent. They're so thorough and so
3: articulate. So it was really great. And yeah. thanks for your feedback too. I got your email this morning. So that was really helpful. And Sam can implement those changes. So thanks again okay. for taking a look at that.
0: Yeah, no no worries. And um, like I said, the, the next two weeks is quite busy. I'm going... I'm going to Italy for work, France for a race on Sunday, then back to England to get my car to drive to France for the horse sale next week. So yeah. it's all just a bit—it's all a bit crazy at the moment. Um, so if I have—if you, must- you have any like updates or whatever, let me know, and I, I'm happy to put my input in. If you have any questions, I'll- okay, yeah, sure, yeah. sure, sure.
3: Are are your non-horse friends like they look at your lifestyle and like, oh my gosh, you are living this like horse royalty, just fantasy world and they just can't comprehend all the traveling and the 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 wealth and the horses so i mean are they just flabbergasted at your career oh completely they're like where
0: is Kelsey now? I have the nickname of Carmen San Diego. <laughs> nobody, knows, nobody knows where I am in the world. I'll like text my friends who are, are non-horsey. I'm like, okay, I'm stateside for like three days. Call me to like catch up if you want. Cause I'm in yeah. the same time zone. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it's, it's very, yeah, they're, they all look at me like I'm crazy. Um, <laughs> And, I and an think to some level, <laughs> Yeah,
3: absolutely. Well, cool. And we have to take a look at the calendar because you said you'll be here in September, right. And, in, in, uh, uh, Kentucky, or was that what yeah. San Diego? No, I'll be in Kentucky. So I'll be in Kentucky
0: from, um, the 9th of September until the 23rd. Um, and I have horses selling on the 20th, the 21st and the 23rd. Um, okay of my pin hook group but yeah like if you guys are around like it's it's insane it's the biggest horse sale in the world um, right. so it's it's really it's really cool and it's it's just quite the vibe oh yeah no, <laughs> it, <we> should, <laughs> I down
3: yeah no yeah. we actually well it's funny because we actually have a meeting with the uscf on the 29th of september i believe so yeah we, we could come down earlier
1: yeah 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 absolutely
3: yeah Cool. Um, yeah.
0: So it's, it's really good. And then if you have any questions or people you want me to connect you with, you just let me know. I, I know a lot of people and if I don't know them, I know the people that know them.
3: Oh, that awesome. that awesome, you. you just let me know. I'm happy to hook you up
0: with whatever you need. Awesome.
3: Uh, thank you so much, Kelsey. It's always a pleasure. Have a great day. Have a good day guys. Take, Take care. Thank
1: you. Bye.
0: Bye.
3: Bye.